Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode contains disturbing content, including mention of suicide. Please take care while listening. It's just past 6 a.m. on the morning of June 16th, 2012. The sun is rising over Perry, Georgia. A plane travels overhead en route to Atlanta. And seated in coach is a man named Aubrey Lee Price, but he goes by Lee. He's 45 years old with light brown hair and green eyes. And his family thinks he's on his way to Guatemala on business, that he'll be back soon. But it's all a lie. When his plane lands in Atlanta, Lee boards a second flight, this time to Key West. The flight is only two hours, but it's all a blur. Lee knows it will be a long time before he sees his family again, if ever. As soon as he arrives in Key West, he takes a taxi to the post office where he drops a letter in the mail. It's over two dozen pages long. And then Lee disappears, leaving every indication that he is gone for good had come back to work and walked in and the bartender, she said, have you seen the news? And I looked at her and I said, no. And so I get on my phone, I start scrolling through the news because the bartender's like, check the news. And that's where I read everything. And complete shock, complete shock. Just, I mean, didn't see it coming. The contents of Lee's letter would make headlines all over the country. The letter contained an admission so shocking that it would leave not just Southwest Georgia, but the entire country asking the same question. Who is Aubrey Lee Price? Price was last seen in June 2012 boarding a ferry terminal in Key West, Florida, heading to Fort Myers, Florida. Then he disappeared after he wrote a note to friends and family saying he lost a large amount of money and that he planned to take his own life. Lee Price was once a small town pastor turned hedge fund owner, turned missing person. And the news of his disappearance was both troubling and perplexing to those who knew him. All I knew was what I read in the Atlanta papers, the whole he disappeared off the boat thing. Lee Price was the last person his friends and family ever thought the FBI would be looking for. He was kind and generous. He had a knack for making money, but lived modestly. His main motivation, seemingly, was to help people. I could go on and on and on about uh, Lee Price and him helping other people. So it came as a surprise to me when I heard all the other stuff that was going on. The more I read about Lee Price, the more I wondered. Was this calculated, methodical financial fraud? Or was this simply a case of bad luck turned worse? So when did Lee decide he wasn't going to be a minister? When did Lee decide that he was going to go into business? What happened to him that he felt that call was no longer his call? If he had understood that this was in his future when I knew him, 
I think it would have tormented him. As I set out to interview people for this story, I kept hitting the same roadblock. The people who knew him, even those who suffered because of him, they were all oddly reluctant to speak with me. The Lee Price they met was a man from humble beginnings, a man who'd worked hard, yet somehow met a steady stream of misfortune. But was it misfortune? Was Lee Price a God-fearing husband, devoted father, beloved member of his community, whose sole mission in life was to help others? Or was he someone else entirely? And he'd get really like, don't, you know, just don't mess anything up. And I don't want this. And, you know, he would kind of get scary. But then again, it's business and there's a lot of money at stake. You know, I've buried this. You know, it kind of scared me, to be honest. You know, the whole situation with knowing him, you know, it was shocking, to say the least. Up until June of 2012, Lee Price was perceived as a law-abiding, all-around good person. But after June of 2012, it seemed like he lost all interest in upholding that pristine image. Instead, he would embrace a darker identity as Jason Price, a seasoned criminal with nothing to lose. So I guess I'll just start with, you know, can you lead us up to the moment um, when you met, and I'm just going to call him Jason because that's what you knew him as? Oh, boy. Okay. Um... From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. This is Season 6, Episode 1. Aubrey Lee Price, Double Time. I'm Hannah Smith. If you are enjoying the show, would you take a moment to rate, review, and follow The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen? Thank you. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the summer of 1995. Griffin, Georgia's humid, subtropical climate is in full effect, but it doesn't stop the members of Teeman Baptist Church from taking their seats in the pews. The reader board out front says, Without God, we don't have a prayer. Their beloved pastor is a man named Lee Price. He's energetic. His sermons are moving. Each one seems to come from a place of deep understanding, a profound relationship with God. You know, I just had a feeling that came over me, like God's spirit was there. And I can't explain it except to tell you that it was, you know, permeated, I think, by Lee Price and what a spiritual person he was at that time. This is one of Lee Price's former congregants. She didn't want us to use her real name, so we'll call her Barbara. In August of 1995, Barbara moved to Griffin, Georgia with her daughter, who we'll call Katie, Katie was born with Down syndrome, a congenital condition that results in distinct facial appearance and developmental delays. Overall, Barbara and Katie liked their new home in Griffin. 
but not everyone in Griffin treated Katie with kindness. There's a lot of prejudice in this area. And so in some areas, she was not accepted. In fact, some areas, we've had teenagers open doors and shove them into us, going to our car in the parking lot, and then just treating her awful in, in a Sunday school class. And finally, I didn't take her back to Sunday school. She just went with me. Barbara and Katie attended a few different churches around Griffin before finding a home at Teeman Baptist. The pastor, Lee, made them feel the kind of acceptance that they had been searching for. He was just such a fine person and and pastor. We joined there several months later. And, you know, if I wasn't working, we were there every time the doors were open. He was very friendly, very personable. He seemed to search out for people that might not be accepted. Lee seemed to truly care about his congregants, their hopes, their struggles. He always wanted to know how he could help. So if someone has never heard of Lee Price at all, doesn't know anything about him, how would you describe him? Like, what kind of person is he? A very caring, giving person. And he never blew his horn. But I know for sure, I know the people that he's paid their taxes, their 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 property taxes, because there's quite a few people from Teeman that weren't really well-to-do at all. And he didn't ride around in any big fancy car either. It just seemed to be a very good, all-around good person. You mentioned that Lee liked to help people, but do you remember anything specifically about that? Lee Price, I know for a fact, he's purchased used cars and and taken them to people that went to the church that did auto mechanics and had them completely checked over and given them to single mothers. He looked for people that might be struggling, I guess you'd say, to a certain extent. And, you know, I can remember going into the prayer meetings on Wednesday and there were quite a few people there. And it just, uh, I'll tell you, it just felt like you could feel God's spirit in that room. Barbara and Lee lost touch over the years after Lee left Teeman Baptist. But she never forgot about him, about his inspiring sermons or the way he made her and her daughter Katie feel at home. None of that lined up with what she would later hear about Lee Price. It made her wonder, how could this be the same man that ended up on the FBI's most wanted list? So I know God was using at that time Lee Price, but I'll tell you something in my many years of life that I've discovered. If you're doing something good and then you're doing it for the Lord, Satan will work double time with you. Lee Price grew up moving around Georgia and Florida, spending the majority of his childhood in Vidalia, Georgia, and Estero, Florida. He was no stranger to struggle. His mother, Judy, was a schoolteacher. And for several years, his father, Jim, was a squash and eggplant farmer. Lee spent summers in the hot sun, helping his dad harvest the squash. They did the best they could, but they never had a lot of money. And this left Lee feeling isolated from his peers. He wrote about it in his book, My Journey to Reckless Abandonment. He writes, My mother began teaching at a private Christian school as I entered the seventh grade, and I was made to attend the same private academy. My first week at school, a girl made fun of my shoes. She asked, Did you get your shoes at the flea market? For the first time in my life, I felt wounded at my economic and social position. 
As the negative feelings of my inferiority built up, I tried to hide my shoes by pulling them under my desk. I realized that I did not belong in the same room as the other kids. Lee talks extensively about being bullied for being poor and how painful that was for him. A strange pain bruised my pride, and I was fearful someone else would say something negative about my clothes. I pled with my parents to change schools, but they would not budge. You'll hear excerpts from Lee's books throughout this season. It's something we haven't done before on this show, but I think that they're really important because they give us a window into Lee Price's mind, so I want to include them. They are narrated by Arvin Lee, another producer we work with. Okay, back to the story. In middle school, Lee fell in love with tennis. It became both an emotional and physical outlet for him, and he practiced hard. But still, all of his work was no match for the kids whose parents had the resources to get them private lessons or time on private courts, and Lee had trouble keeping up. Without exception, those with money could afford the best pros and national tournament travel, while I continued to move up and down row after row planting, digging, pulling, cutting, and grating onions. I walked in long lines mowing other people's yards. Then I started giving tennis lessons to a few beginners while I neglected my studies, hoping for some kind of miracle on the courts. Eventually, Lee gave up tennis. He just couldn't compete. I think we're all impacted by the way that we grow up. Our childhood is the first lens that we see the world through. And for Lee, his modest upbringing brought him to a stark realization early in life that money makes things possible. Without money, life is much harder. But once he was in high school, Lee finally found his community, a place where what his family had or didn't have didn't impact his worth. He attended a youth retreat with his family's Baptist church. This retreat was the beginning of Lee's religious awakening. June 20, 1983 was the defining point of my life. I committed my life to Christ and put my trust in him to save me from my past, present, and future sins. I submitted to him as my Lord and Savior. It was not a quick or hasty decision. There were intolerable conflicts of the soul. My heart had been fixed on sports, peers, money, and independence. Lee now had a new perspective that released the sinking feeling he'd experienced throughout adolescence. He now believed that his focus on things like sports or money had been a sin. And refocusing on God freed him from the feeling that he wasn't good enough. I began to clearly understand that my sin had separated me from a loving and caring God who recklessly and outrageously pursued me. By the time he left for college, Lee had decided his life's path. He would pursue a life of ministry and become the pastor of his own church someday. I knew Lee both as a student and as an active person in that campus ministry. It was a pretty tight group because it was a, a relatively small campus. It's a, it, was a, it was and is a little bitty town. So campus life was all that was going on. This is Lloyd Allen. From the mid to late 80s, Lloyd was a professor at Bruton Parker Baptist College in Mount Vernon, Georgia. And Lee was one of his students. Since Lloyd taught religious studies, Lee attended many of his classes. Classes like the New Testament, church history, and Baptist heritage. 
Lloyd remembers that Lee was part of a small social circle, referred to by the other students as the HDCs. That's the heavy-duty Christian. Lee's commitment to the Baptist faith and to his aspiration of pastoring was unwavering. After studying religion all week, he attended a small conservative Baptist church in nearby Fidelia. He was a member of the Baptist Student Union, and he ministered on campus. He lived in a very strict world that was, I would describe it as kind of, everything was right and wrong, black or white. They were the pure people and the not pure people. And he trusted authority, especially religious authority, in a way that made me uncomfortable. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right and wrong, good and evil. It was an extreme view of the world, but one that made sense to Lee. He judged those around him by his strict moral code, but it seemed that he was the hardest on himself. He was determined to be good. And I describe that because that means that he had, in my view, a kind of inner set that he needed to be pure. He needed to get things right. At the same time, Lee's peers remember him being fun and lighthearted and someone who always thought about helping others. Kathy met Lee during a mission trip they both attended in which they helped build houses in Florida. I got to know him just as we were traveling and we were laughing and cutting up. He had a a very pleasant personality. He was extremely funny, um, made a lot of jokes, but he was also quiet at times, too, very humble. Another one of Lee's friends at the time said that Lee had a magnetic personality, that people loved being around him. Lee was a natural leader. I mean, he just, uh, he drew people to himself Not in a bad way, but in a good way. We had a get-together, and I think it was on Tuesday nights or Thursday nights, down in this little chapel at Bruton Parker. And we called it Romans 10.10, which comes from, you know, a verse in the Bible. There are all these people meet down there at 10.10 p.m., and we'd have, like, this little worship service, and he would always play the guitar. And there was probably, I bet there were 100 students that would pack this little chapel and this was, this was essentially Lee's creation, and people loved it, and he, he led it. So he was very, like I said, he's very charismatic and very, just a good leader. Lee was someone you could joke around with, but you also knew he cared about you. He was always there if you needed to talk. And he was just a very good friend to people. He cared about them, and if they were going through stuff, he would always check in on them. I'm very trustworthy, honest. I'm just a lot of fun to be around. What did it seem like Lee's plan for his life was as far as a career path? 
his plan was to be a pastor, but he wanted to get married, and I was glad to introduce him to what became his wife later. They were a couple that were just made for one another. She was very loving and beautiful and kind, all the things I knew he was looking for. Lee married Rebecca Van Noose, who he'd met at Bruton Parker. She was the daughter of a Baptist minister and a lifelong Southerner herself. And during the mid-1990s, Lee and Rebecca had three children in less than five years. First, Nathaniel, then Hannah, and then Samuel. A short time later, they had their fourth, the youngest, Esther. They're wonderful kids. And his wife, Rebecca, you know, was a school teacher, but she was very much supported Lee and in his ministry and stuff like that. This is Victor Wolf. Victor was one of Lee's high school teachers, but they formed such a bond that even after Lee graduated, they stayed in touch and became friends. I was very close to Lee, and my youngest son is named Benjamin Lee, and he was named after Lee. In the mid-90s, Lee was working full-time as a pastor at Teeman Baptist in Griffin, Georgia. Lee didn't get into pastoring for the money. His salary was approximately $24,000, which would be about $46,000 today. It wasn't a lot of money for his growing family. And then in 1995, Lee's grandmother passed away, and he inherited $20,000 from her estate. That was almost an entire year's salary. And Lee decided to take that money and invest it. And he was successful. For the first time in his life, Lee had more money than he needed. I always saved at least 10% of my income, staying out of debt, and invested my meager savings in various mutual funds. But with that little bit of seed money, I was able to turn $20,000 into $100,000 trading wheat, corn, and soybean futures. I gave to some missions, paid cash for a vehicle, made a solid down payment on a lake house, and kept learning how to trade. The ability to grow that 20 grand into 100 grand gave Lee a sense of confidence, a feeling that maybe he could do it again. Lee wondered what having more money could do for his own family and for others. As a personal matter, I wanted to be a tent maker and not make my living from the local church. I did not ask for funds from the church, but I worked harder than my peers at my business and lived by faith for God's provision in my life. Trading was a way to earn more money for his family, but also potentially a way to help people. Lee felt that he was good with money. Maybe this was part of his calling. Here's Barbara again. Lee when I retired from the building material company, he helped me with my retirement funds and things of that sort. We're going to put them completely honest, completely helpful. Barbara isn't the only person I talked with who told me that Lee helped them with their finances. In the late 90s, Barry Cooper and his family were also members of Teeman Baptist. It was just a small country church. We, we averaged probably 110 on Sunday. It was small enough that everybody knew everybody. Barry and his wife at the time, Anne, were working hard to better organize their finances and to pay off their debt. So when their pastor, Lee, brought a finance class to the church, they gladly attended. We were pretty close. He brought some classes to the church, Larry Burkett and Ron Blue, which are the foretellers of the Ramsey Solutions Financial Peace 
So we were in a class and we were able to, the classes were about getting out of debt and that sort of thing. Dave Ramsey is an evangelical Christian and is also the mega millionaire behind Ramsey Solutions. In 1994, he launched a lesson series called Financial Peace University. Part of Financial Peace University are the seven baby steps. They're pretty straightforward. Save up some cash for an emergency fund, pay off debt, save more cash, and step four, invest. For Anne and for Barry, this class was life-changing. For the first time, they were able to get ahead of their finances. They weren't just saving money, they now had enough to begin building wealth through investing. And Lee stepped in to guide them through that process. So my wife and I got out of debt, and as part of that, we were able to invest a little bit. You know, how, how did that class help you, and what did you and your wife think about um, sort of taking control of your financial life? Was that like a big deal for y'all? Oh, yeah, that was huge. And my daughter was a teenager at the time. And so with us being out of debt, we were able to pay for her college degrees without her having to take out any student loans. And so it was a huge benefactor for our whole family. In the year 2000, Lee took and passed three exams that allowed him to sell most types of securities and solicit orders for securities. Securities is a catch-all term for stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and other investments that can be bought and sold. Lee could also provide investing and financial advice to clients. When Lee passed his exams, he continued working as a pastor, but went down to part-time. He took a job as a broker at Salomon Smith Barney in Alpharetta, Georgia. Salomon Smith Barney is now Morgan Stanley. It's an investment bank headquartered in New York. You know, just was very good and would make money for them and could turn money around very quickly and stuff like that. Despite his success in the role, Lee did not enjoy the office environment. It was a far cry from working at a Baptist church. The following book excerpts are from The Angel of Pain, also written by Lee Price. When I officially began in the investment business as an investment banker advisor, I started in the confines of cubicle hell. I suffered 80 and 90 hour work weeks, horrendous commutes in Atlanta traffic, obnoxious paperwork, and arbitrary corporate hierarchies. I put up with arrogant and demanding bosses. I had to maneuver around competitive and oftentimes rude work associates. I had to daily practice putting others first and serving some clients that I simply did not like. In 2003, Lee accepted a position at Bank of America Securities, an investment banking subsidiary of Bank of America. Basically, it was a place where individuals, corporations, and government agencies could invest their money with financial advisors, known as broker-dealers. In 2006, he left that role and moved into a new position as a broker at FSC Securities, which was owned by AIG. Lee was successful as a broker at FSC, but he wanted more for himself and his family. So in 2008, he decided to go into business for himself. He opened a hedge fund, Price Financial Group LLC, or PFG, and began taking clients. So what does that mean exactly, and why does it matter? Well, the move that Lee made to open his own hedge fund 
is actually a critical one. Up until this point, he had worked for large financial institutions with a lot of oversight. But once he started his hedge fund, PFG, he was on his own. It means no one was really watching him. And Lee didn't have a systematic investment approach at PFG. He wasn't using computer programs to inform trades. He was only relying on himself and his predictions of what stocks would be good investments. For those who knew Lee as a young man, this new venture in finance was shocking, to say the least. Lee called up his college buddy around this time. I guess I just never imagined that he would get into finance and that kind of thing. And he called me, told me that he was heading up his own finance business. I just cracked up laughing because I thought, well, this is just typical Lee, you know, humor is what this is. And he's messing with me. And I'm like, there's no way, there's no way you're doing that because that's just not who I knew he was. So it was kind of surprising. It was shocking to me to find out that he was doing anything other than pastoring a church. And how did he respond when you laughed? What did you recall from the rest of that conversation? Oh, he just kept trying to convince me. I mean, he was like, no, 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 no. Listen, here's the receptionist. Say hi. And she'd say hi. I'm like, you are, you are totally messing with me right now. I just couldn't stop laughing about it. But Lee had no trouble getting investors for his hedge fund. He was well-connected to a network of people who trusted him, his church members like Barry Cooper and Anne, Barry's wife at the time. Lee even gave seminars about how to be a wise Christian investor. Eventually, Barry and Anne invested money in Price Financial Group, or PFG. It was basically just a lot of people that were in the church, you know, people that were close to Lee and, you know, had gone through the class or, you know, had some money on the side that they were able to invest and that sort of thing. Uh, it was very small him and his dad were small investors and they kind of played the stock market a little bit. And of course he would send out what had taken place, what stocks they were in. Everything was open per se. Still, everything seemed above board. Lee had his investors, who were mostly made up of members of his church, sign a contract with one very important clause. Of course, there's always, you know, the The whole thing of, you know, you could lose all your money. All of that was in there, too. It almost seemed like an afterthought because, of course, when you're investing, you could lose all your money. It's part of the deal. But there's no way Barry could have predicted just how he would lose his money. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hedge funds are riskier than, say, mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. Hedge funds are most often utilized by wealthy people or institutional investors, people or entities who have a lot of capital and can afford to lose, because losing is the risk. But with Lee, Barry and his wife Anne felt like they were in good hands. You know, we're Christians, and so there were things that he would not invest in, such as cigarettes or alcohol or, you know, he would, it was kind of a Christian community type investing. While it was unusual for a hedge fund to recruit so many of its clients through a church, it made sense to Barry because of their shared value system. And values aside, PFG was growing. Soon, Lee had over 100 clients. The majority were former church members, but he also had some institutional clients. Altogether, PFG amassed a whopping $40 million in funds. Lee often held meetings with some of his investors, but they were sort of a hybrid between updates on PFG and a Christian men's group. We would meet at a restaurant for breakfast and that sort of thing. And, and not only just him and I, but there were a group of people would meet sometimes. And sometimes it would be just he and I. But it was more of a discipleship kind of thing. You know, how's your walk with Christ and sort of that kind of thing. And then he was teaching me how to research stocks to find out if it's a good stock to invest and that sort of thing also. The same group also traveled on mission trips together. But as Lee got busier with Price Financial Group, it became more difficult for him to engage in the work that they were doing. We had done mission work in Venezuela. I had been down there with him as part of a group several times, but he was constantly on the computer trying to trade stocks and that sort of thing while we were down there. We built churches and that kind of stuff. And so he would not participate with us, but he would see him in the afternoon and that sort of stuff. And he was trading and trying to do deals, even as we were on mission trips. It seemed like Lee was just feeling the pressure of running a multi-million dollar hedge fund, a far cry from the $20,000 inheritance that had first ignited his interest in investing. The stress was easy to understand and not necessarily an indicator that anything was going wrong. Well, he did confide in me that if he didn't make a certain amount of money a day, that It was a wasted day, and so I could tell that there's possibly was some pressure from, I guess, his own self, because he was manager of the hedge fund, but, you know, he was just trying to perform and not lose money, and I think that it wasn't making as much money as he was wanting it to make. Lee Price officially launched PFG in January of 2008. Then, in October, the market crashed, and almost no one was coming out on top. The closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, the main index, down over 7%. Shock and panic evident on the faces of those on the trading floor. Following the 2008 market crash, Barry noticed Lee's energy beginning to change. Lee seemed to be under tremendous stress. He would develop these meetings and we would all go up and there would be a meal and he would sit and talk about the, the hedge funds and that kind of thing. There were a few times where he didn't, he would never come over and talk to us, kind of like he was embarrassed kind of thing. And so he started withdrawing, phone calls got less. And so he was just kind of withdrawing from the friendship and the fellowship that we had shared. 
Kenneth Marina is an attorney in Miami, Florida, who would later become very familiar with Lee Price and Price Financial Group. He told me that Lee simply didn't have the experience to manage millions of dollars, let alone in a volatile market. He just wasn't really that experienced, and he didn't do a great job of picking his you know, investments. Those initial poor decisions that he made resulted in him making you know, other poor decisions, and it was, it was like a snowball effect that just got, kept getting worse and worse. One of the ways that Lee intended to build wealth for his clients at PFG was to use their funds to make large real estate investments. He bought all these residential and commercial properties in Florida and in Georgia and Venezuela, um, but they turned out to not be great investments. After years of going on mission trips to Venezuela, Lee decided to purchase several farming properties there with investor funds. He also purchased land in Colombia and Guatemala, but it turned out that none of those were very lucrative investments. And he wasn't, there wasn't an organized uh, manner that he was like bringing in rental income and then paying out investors in, in, in over the course of time. He was collecting all this money, buying all these properties, and it didn't seem like he had a real coherent strategy for paying these investors back eventually. It was very, it seemed very haphazard. It seemed like he was just buying random properties in random places. When the housing bubble burst and the market crashed, Lee knew PFG was in dire straits. Most of his clients were not high net worth investors. They were regular people and families who'd been saving for 30 or 40 years. And they would need that money back. For many of them, that money was their retirement plan. While most people were losing money during this time, Lee Price told his clients that Price Financial Group was actually doing well. Their money was safe. Would it be fair to say that by taking investors' money from the broker-dealer firm to his own hedge fund, does that present more risk with people's money than to keep it at the broker-dealer firm? Well, yeah. (laughs) Yes. I mean, he he totally mischaracterized what he was doing in the offering materials. He had no plan. It was just him. There was nobody supervising him. There was nobody giving him direction. As best I can tell, there was nobody engaging in any kind of due diligence. This is John Chapman, another attorney who would later work to recoup lost money for Lee's investors. It was just Lee Price day trading in 2008 and 2009 when the market was crashing all around and the losses were catastrophic. And and he misled his investors to believe that all was well and that uh, while everybody else was losing their shirt, investors in PFG were doing fine and the losses were minimal thanks to his acumen. Martha Westmoreland was a longtime client of Lee Price. Martha passed away in 2020, but I was able to speak with her daughter, Robin. She completed high school in Cleveland, met my father. Um, They got married and had my sister and me. And they divorced when I was two and my sister was five. So my mom was, um, she entered the workforce and supported me and my sister. Martha was a single mother, working hard to give her daughters everything they could have ever needed. She got them into the best schools, exposed them to travel and different arts and cultures, and enrolled them in piano lessons. She was also good with money and instilled in her daughters the importance of saving and planning. She really had a plan for her life. And she put my sister and me both through college and we would, you know, have our four-year degrees. So 
my mom was a pretty much a self-made um, woman. She was independent, meticulous, and industrious. It was through her dealings with Bank of America that she was introduced to Aubrey Lee Price, who was a financial advisor. When Lee left Bank of America, Martha took her account to FSC so she could continue working with Lee as her financial advisor. Martha appreciated Lee's Christian values and the importance he placed on family. There was one thing about her mother's working relationship with Lee that struck Robin the wrong way. So they would meet at Chick-fil-A, and I used to, I used to would say, Mom, you know, does he even buy you lunch or coffee or something? She said, well, no, you, you know, it's okay, though. So when they would meet, you know, he presented himself as a family man, so he gained her trust. Meeting clients at Chick-fil-A was strange, sure. And the fact that Lee never bought Martha lunch was also odd. But Martha was a diligent record keeper, and her account with Lee at FSC seemed to be all in order. So Robin tried not to worry about it. I didn't really know a lot about him, but she would always say, oh, I'm going to go meet my financial advisor. And I'm like, okay. So she was pretty private about it. I don't. I think if we'd asked her questions about it, she would have said something. But, you know, she just managed her everything herself. She was used to, to doing that. And she had, um, like I said, copious notes about every transaction that they made. Um, if he mailed her a letter, she would put the date that the letter was received, um, maybe what they even talked about. She just was a documenter. Robin told me they used to call her mother the human computer. That is how detailed Martha's notes were. She knew that she had a total of $146,000 saved in a 401k that she entrusted with Lee Price. In March of 2010, Lee had a suggestion for Martha. He advised her to make a significant change with her investment, one that she would later deeply regret. In March of 2010, He suggested to my mom that she move her money, this was in 2010, move her $140,000 to his hedge fund, the PFG hedge fund, 2010. He told her that the traditional banks were probably going to take a downturn after the 2008 recession. And she trusted him, so she followed his advice. She would say Lee Price suggested, basically, that she transfer her, her money to this hedge fund. Lee convinced Martha to transfer her entire 401k into PFG. Martha would occasionally take disbursements from her 401k account. A disbursement is just money taken out of a 401k for retirement income. She was using her disbursements to pay for rental properties that then brought her additional income. And true to form, Martha took diligent notes about when she could expect those payments. But soon after she moved her money to PFG, those disbursements started arriving late, or sometimes not at all. So she would write a letter and say, hey, I didn't you know, get that disbursement that I was supposed to get, and you told me it was going to come at this particular time. And you know, there was some excuse made, oh, well, I'll get it to you in the next you know, week or so. There were things like that that would occur. So that did happen on occasion. And she would also get correspondence from him during certain periods of time that said he had moved the location of his company. And this, I think he moved maybe three times. If Lee Price got into investing in order to help people, it's clear that by 2010, something had changed. Advising Martha to move her 401k out of a regulated wealth management firm 
and into a high-risk hedge fund was not just bad advice. It was misleading and sinister. Martha had no idea that she just moved her hard-earned savings into a fund that was losing money, big money. Lee had taken people's life savings and invested it so poorly that now he was watching it disappear. And the light at the end of the tunnel was getting dimmer and dimmer. Lee did not disclose his losses to investors. They believed that PFG was thriving. But Lee had a plan. He would save PFG and recoup his losses, and no one would ever have to know the difference. His plan was to raise additional investment money from people like Martha Westmerland, and then use that cash to make new investments and provide quick returns to his new investors. In other words, this was a Ponzi scheme. I mean, it was a fraud. I mean, the term risk doesn't really even apply. It's what's called sometimes affinity fraud. Many of these folks were good church-going Christians who never would dream that their pastor would deceive them. Lee was losing his grip, and he knew it. But those who'd entrusted him with their savings did not. They received account statements that told them that things were good, their money was growing. It is a fundamental belief of all traders that our best trade is always in front of us. However, because the time window was so limited, the pressure was too much to bear. Instead of acknowledging my losses immediately, I concealed the losses, hoping to find a solution. Not to cause pain or get over on anyone. My motivation was to fix the problem and return funds to investors. I think it's really important, and I hope you all will air this, I think it's really important to understand that somebody's motives mean everything. That if a person really wants to do evil, which I'm not sure anybody chooses to do evil for the sake of evil, but some people have very selfish, selfish motives. And then there are people who start off a certain way and their motives maybe get a little curved. And before you know it, they've gone down this road that they don't even understand how they got there. But I I do think it's like a domino effect, uh, snowballing type thing. To come out on the other side and recoup the massive losses his investors were unknowingly experiencing at PFG, Lee needed a miracle. The thing is, Lee Price believed in miracles. And the way he saw it, a gold mine was waiting just around the corner in the little town of Ailey, Georgia. But by the summer of 2012, Lee's scheme would unravel and he would leave his whole life behind to escape the disaster he had created. That's next time on The Opportunist. FBI is making a renewed effort to find a multi-million dollar fraud suspect who could be in Southwest Florida. They're putting up these new billboards offering a $20,000 reward for any information that will help find Aubrey Lee Price. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. 
It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with Paisha Eaton, Natalie Gregory, Kate Mays, and Sarah Dalgleish. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Book narration and episodic cover art is by Arvin Lee. The opportunist show cover art is by Joel Hasmeyer. Special thanks to Trent K. Maverick. Our theme song is Waltz for Zachariah from the album Cholate. The ending credit song is The Crow by Paul Graham Stanborough. Do you have a suggestion for the show, an opportunist that you'd like to hear us cover? You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. If you're enjoying The Opportunist, I would love it so much if you would take a moment, go to wherever you listen and subscribe to the show. Um, It also helps us a lot if you can rate and review the show, specifically on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show. So thank you so, so much. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.